right, good morning, everybody. Glad to see you this morning. I hope you have your Bible with you. If you do, you need to turn to Revelation chapter 8. Revelation chapter 8 is where we are. Last week, we looked at what many scholars refer to as an interlude in chapter 7. It's an interruption of the vision uh, about breaking seals that focuses our attention on the people of God, on his sealing and numbering and keeping of them in the midst of the trouble. Like many texts in Revelation, there's some very debated matters in that chapter. And as we tried to look closely at the text last week, we also tried to zoom out a bit and see the overall impact of this chapter and what, it, what impact it would have had on John's original audience and therefore also on us. I want you to remember that the more we understand what it meant for them, the more we will understand what it means for us. For the text never changes. The meaning of the text never changes. So the more we can understand it then, the more we will understand it now. And with all that said, you may disagree with me about some of the positions I took last week on the details of the text. You might disagree about the identity of the 144,000. You might disagree about uh, the nature of the so-called great tribulation that we saw in the text last week or something else. But I hope that we will agree that this passage is intended to be encouraging to the people of God. Wherever we stand on the 144,000, wherever we stand on the Great Tribulation, that passage is intended to be encouraging to us, to help us endure any kind of trouble that comes our way by giving us a glimpse of the glory that awaits us. In the text last week, we saw that God knows his people. God seals his people. God keeps his people. There's this promise that he will hold us fast. And the question that arises out of that is, are you one of his people? It's the most important question in the world every day. Do you belong to him? Are you one of his people, not by lineage, not by proximity, and not by performance, but are you one of his people by personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? If you are, he knows you. He seals you and he keeps you. And therefore, the second application is we are called to endure by faith through the trouble that comes our way unto eternal victory. In fact, this is, this is the banner that we've been flying over our entire study of Revelation. That it gives us a vision of Jesus that inspires and empowers faithful endurance through difficulty, through suffering, through persecution, unto certain and eternal victory in Christ. Boil it down and you get awestruck wonder. And faithful endurance, all struck wonder that inspires faithful endurance. And we saw that application from the text last week. We also saw a great application for evangelism. And we'll, we'll revisit that somewhat today in the text that we look at in chapter 8. We saw this call for evangelism, this promise that there are men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation that have been redeemed by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that they will gather around the throne and sing his praises. So when we go to the nations, when we go to our neighbors, we go with great confidence knowing that God is redeeming all kinds of people. And we also saw an application for worship. We saw that worship is loud in Revelation, and we saw that it's contagious, uh, and we saw that it's centered around the theme of salvation specifically exalting the one who does the saving. It's never centered around the ones who are saved, but it is focused on the one who does the saving. We saw all of that last week. And this week, in chapter 8, we're going to get back on track with the breaking of the seventh seal. And right off the bat, we're going to encounter a hotly debated issue. Namely, what is the relationship between the seals and the trumpets and the bowls? 
So we're going to see as we continue on in Revelation, we, we've dealt with seals and we'll finish those today. Then we're going to see a series of trumpets, seven trumpets. And then later on, we'll see a series of bowls, seven bowls. What is the relationship between those three sets of seven? As with many things in Revelation, there are a number of schools of thought on this matter. But there are two schools of thought that to me seem to hold water best. One of those schools is, is sometimes called the telescopic understanding of these things. They're referred to as a telescopic approach. And those scholars see the seventh seal being comprised of the seven trumpets. And the seven trumpets being comprised of the seven bowls. Uh, and so maybe a way to visualize this is those Russian uh, nesting dolls. Have you seen those before? Uh, those little little dolls where like you pull the top off of one and there's another one inside it. You pull the top off another one and there's another one inside of it. It's almost as if you see seals one through six and then you pull the top off and seal seven contains a whole bunch of more things and that's the trumpets. And then when you get to the seven trumpets, you pull the top off and there's seven things inside of that which represent the bowls. That's one school of thought, this telescopic approach where we get more and more focused, more and more detailed as we move along. The other school of thought sees the similarities of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls as basically a repetition of one another from various perspectives for the sake of emphasis. In other words, basically the seals, the bowls, and the trumpets are all just different ways of describing, or in John's case, actually seeing the very same things. Now, if pressed, I would fall into that later camp, that camp of, uh, recapitulation or repetition of the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls. I would fall in that camp, especially as I consider just the fluid nature of apocalyptic prophecy and, and the fact that it doesn't just move on linearly in time. It just doesn't seem to need to work that way, nor does it practically work that way. And this idea of seeing things from different perspectives with different imagery, seeing the same thing and describing it a bunch of different ways just really fits with apocalyptic prophecy. But I think for the most part, any disagreement on how we understand the seals, the trumpets, and the bowls relating to one another should not divide us, especially in this room, as we try to apply all of these texts to our lives. So again, like with many things, there's disagreement amongst scholars, there's room for disagreement amongst us, and yet we will, we will still kind of arrive at the same application, even if we understand the details differently. So today, let's dive right in. We're going to cover all of chapter 8 today, and it's super interesting. So look at it, chapter 8, verse 1. This is God's word. It says, When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. And I saw the seven angels who, were, who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel came and stood at the altar holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up before God out of the angel's hand. Verse 5, Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire, with the fire of the altar, and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. Verse 6, and the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood, and they were thrown to the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. The second angel sounded, and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. 
and a third of the sea became blood, and a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. A third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of waters. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the waters because they were made bitter." fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day would not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Verse 13, then I looked, and I heard an eagle flying in mid-heaven, saying with a loud voice, woe, 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 to those who dwell on the earth, because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, help us today to keep the main thing the main thing. We know that this is the revelation of Jesus Christ. We know that this book is intended to help the church endure by faith through difficult times. We know that it is to inspire worship and to ignite our passion for evangelism, missions, and discipleship. So we pray that you will help us today not just to understand the text, but to believe it, to obey it, and to be changed by it. All for the sake of your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so look at verse 1. When the Lamb broke the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Now the interlude that we looked at last week interrupted the vision of the breaking of these seals after the sixth seal was broken, and this question was posed, right, who can stand? And the interlude answered the question by saying that it's the people of God. The people of God who are known by him and numbered by him and sealed by him, they can stand and they will stand. And here we get back to the seals. And the seventh of those seals is broken. And what happens when this last seal is broken may seem to us to be quite anticlimactic. When this seal is broken, what do we see? Nothing. Silence in heaven for about 30 minutes. And I want us to I want to argue that this silence in heaven is not nothing. It's not a great sentence, but that, that's what I want to explain. This silence in heaven is not nothing. Rather, it is something, and it is something big. Let's just think about that from our own practical experience for a little while. How remarkable and rare is 30 minutes of silence for you? I can tell you at my house it is remarkable and rare. In fact, if I want 30 minutes of silence around my house, I need to get up before the sun. And so I do a lot of times just for that purpose so that I can have a moment where it's not chaotic around my house because everyone else is sleeping. But when everyone else is up, it's chaos all the time around my house. Is that your experience too? In fact, I thought, I thought today what might be a great exercise is just 30 minutes of silence. Like not preach today, Just read and then let you sit for 30 minutes. You would be so uncomfortable. You would think, what in the world is going on? Something big is about to happen or someone has gone crazy, right? Think about it just from your perspective. 30 minutes of silence would be strange to you. And think about how remarkable it is and how different it is when compared to everything else we've seen in Revelation so far. I mean, from the beginning, it has been loud, has it not? 
From the beginning, it has been vivid and big and active. From the very beginning, it's been one action, one kind of overwhelming sensory experience after another. And now we get the seventh seal broken and it all stops. It all stops and becomes still and silent. That would be stunning. And it was for John. So I want to argue that it it is juxtaposed to the norm of our lives. It's juxtaposed to the norm of revelation. But mostly I want to argue that this silence is a big deal and it is actually a climax of sorts and it is linked biblically to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord is linked to ultimate judgment. And so this moment of silence is some Old Testament paint. We've talked about that a lot in here, right? I'm going to use that language a lot today, that that there is Old Testament color of silence that is linked with the day of the Lord. And John's original audience would have understood that a lot better than we do today. I'll give you some examples of Old Testament silence um, from Zephaniah. These first three come from the minor prophets, which we are not typically experts in minor prophets. Um, But I I want to tell you, it's not just the minor prophets that say these things, okay? Zephaniah chapter 1 Verse 7 says, Be silent before the Lord God, for the day of the Lord is near. For the Lord has prepared a sacrifice, he has consecrated his guests. So there's this link between silence and the day of the Lord, and that's what's, that's what's coming to pass here in Revelation. Zechariah chapter 2, verse 13 says, Be silent, all flesh, before the Lord, for he is aroused from his holy habitation. In other words, he's about to act, and therefore be quiet. Habakkuk, 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 depends on where you went to school, I think, how you say that. Chapter 2, verse 20 says, but the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent before him. And the psalmist says it this way in chapter 76, verse 8, you caused judgment to be heard from heaven. The earth feared and was still or silent when God arose to judgment to save all the humble of the earth, Selah. So in other words, this silence is linked to the Old Testament concept of the day of the Lord, and this silence marks it out. That's not all that marks the day of the Lord. There's other Old Testament colors that are used to describe the day of the Lord, but one of the Old Testament colors is silence, and that's what we see when the seventh seal is broken. This is the day of the Lord. Look at verse 2. And I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Now, verse 2 gives us a great opportunity to talk about just how fluid apocalyptic prophecy is. Because here we're introduced to seven angels that are evidently quite noteworthy, right? They are referred to as the seven angels that stand before the Lord. But we haven't been introduced to these guys yet, have we? Like, we've, we've been introduced to all kinds of characters. We've met elders, we've met living creatures, we've met angels, myriads of myriads, hundreds and hundreds. We've met saints of old. We've seen all of these things. But these guys, we've not been introduced to them yet. And yet, here they are. Now, there's some Jewish tradition about seven named archangels, including Michael and Gabriel, the two names that we're familiar with. And maybe this is some kind of reference to that Jewish tradition of these seven archangels that stand in the presence of God. Maybe this is a reference to the angels of the seven churches that we were introduced to earlier in the letters, right? In chapters 2 and 3, there's an angel of each church, and there were seven churches, so maybe these are those angels. Maybe that's, those are the dots that we need to connect. Or maybe we need to not worry about connecting the dots. In fact, I think our best move is just to go with it. Just to go with this here, not, not get too wrapped up about connecting the dots, but just say, all right, there are seven angels that are given seven trumpets and we're going to see something crazy right now. 
and not get too worked up about their identity because like I've argued a lot of times, being, being so concrete and settled in your understanding of the identity of these specific creatures may cause us to miss the broader point. Right, And so I think our best move is just to go with it. They are seven angels who stand before God, and they are given trumpets. Notice that they are given these trumpets. So, like the seals, this is not something that happens by their authority. This is not something that happens uh, because, because it's their idea or their power. It is something that is given to them. Just like, just like the horsemen were given authority over certain parts of the earth to bring destruction, these angels are given the trumpets that they blow. And the fact that they are angels underscores their lack of authority. Angels are simply God's servants who serve as his messengers. They simply do what he tells them to do. So they are not authorities of themselves. They are servants of the Lord. So all of this that's going to happen as these trumpets are blown is directed by the Lord and not by these seven angels. One last thing before we move on from verse 2 is about the trumpets. Those trumpets themselves are significant Old Testament paint. There's a lot of references to trumpets in the Old Testament. And the people of God knew that trumpets always were sounded to get their attention, to alert them to something big that was taking place. John MacArthur outlines some of the uses of trumpets when he says, In the Old Testament, trumpets were used to summon the congregation of Israel, to sound the alarm in a time of war. They were used at religious feasts. They were used to announce news. They were, new, they were used to acclaim new kings. And they were used in worship. And in Zephaniah chapter 1, a text that we referenced uh, broader, a, a different spot in a while ago, associates trumpets with the day of the Lord. So in other words, big stuff is announced with trumpets. Trumpets get people's attention. And these trumpets, when they start sounding, will get people's attention for sure. But before we get to that, there's another angel that appears. Look at verse 3. So we've got these seven angels that are given the trumpets, and then verse 3 says, another angel came... And stood at the altar, holding a golden censer, and much incense was given to him, so that he might add it to the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar, which was before the throne. And the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints went up, went up before God out of the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with the fire of the altar and threw it to the earth. And there followed peals of thunder, peals and sounds and flashes of lightning and an earthquake. This, verses 3, 4, and 5, seem to be the general introduction to the specifics of the seven trumpets. And there's a huge lesson here for us about prayer. I don't want you to miss this. And there's a lot of Old Testament paint being used here that connects the prayers of the people of God with the incense that was burned in the tabernacle or the temple that rose up to the Lord. Psalm 141, verse 2, says it like this. Actually, verse 1 starts, O Lord... I call upon you, hasten to me, give ear to my voice when I call to you. May my prayer be counted as incense before you, lifting up my hands as the evening offering. This idea of, of the priest burning this incense and it representing in a symbolic way, in a ritualistic way, it representing the prayers of, of the people of God as they rise up to him. That's, old, that's an Old Testament concept that you're actually not unfamiliar with. And you're not unfamiliar with it because you know the Christmas story. And when we're introduced to John the Baptist's dad in the Christmas story, we find him doing his priestly duty in the temple, right? And what he is doing is burning incense, and the people of God are outside, and they are praying. Look at it in Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, verse 8. It'll be on the screen. It says, 
Now it happened that while he, that's Zacharias, John the Baptist's dad, was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside at the hour of the incense offering. Right, so, that, so there is this link between the people praying and the incense that is burnt, and it rises up to the Lord as a pleasing aroma to him in a symbolic way. But it's ultimately the prayers uh, that God desires, not the incense, right? And so there is this link, and it's that same link that is played upon in this vision in Revelation chapter 8. Here, the people of God are praying. They are praying to God for deliverance and vindication, and we've already seen this. Joe talked about this, about the prayers of the, of the martyrs that are rising up to God from underneath the altar, and they are saying, how long, O Lord, how long before you vindicate us? And another note, the trumpets, as we see them play out, will use a lot of Exodus paint. There's a lot of, a lot of parallels with the Exodus story in these. And we know that in Exodus, as the people were in opposition in Egypt, as they were persecuted in Egypt, as they were experiencing great trouble in Egypt, they were constantly crying out to God for help, were they not? They were, they were crying out to the Lord, where, where are you? Will you deliver us? Will you help us? That's part of the introduction of the whole Exodus story is the people were crying out to God in the midst of their trouble. And part of the story is that God heard those cries. And he answered their prayers. And we see the same thing going on here in Revelation. The prayers of the people of God go up. And what we see in verse 5 and verse 6 is that the power of God comes down, just like it does in the Exodus story. The prayers of the people of God go up, and the power of God comes down in response to their prayers. Now, in what is a rare occurrence in Revelation, there seems to be agreement amongst most scholars that this few verses, these few verses offer us an encouragement to pray and a lesson about the effectiveness of prayer, that God will hear our prayers and he will answer our prayers, especially those prayers that say, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, especially those prayers that say, come Lord Jesus, deliver us, vindicate us, set things right. He hears those prayers, and one day he will answer those prayers. Those are the prayers that go up like incense, and the power of God comes down. As we see in this fire that is thrown down by the angel, the expository commentary says it like this. It may often seem that our prayers are not being answered, that they are offered in vain, but Revelation assures us that God hears the prayers of the saints. All through history, God's people have prayed for his kingdom to come and his will to be done. Every prayer, every prayer for the coming kingdom will certainly be answered. There's some encouragement here for us. That those prayers that we offer when we say, oh, come Lord Jesus, are heard and they will be answered. Eugene Peterson really ties it to the first century church in a, in a really interesting way when he says, while conflicts raged between good and evil... Prayers went up from devout bands of first century Christians all over the Roman Empire. Massive engines of persecution and scorn were ranged against them. They had neither weapons nor votes. They had little money and no prestige, but they did have prayer. Oh, that's good, right? They didn't have any way to fight against this persecution, but they had prayer. And I wonder how many of our brothers and sisters are living around the world in that same situation today. They don't have a voice, 
They don't have a voice in their country. They don't have a voice in their community, but they have a voice in the presence of God. And I wonder how often we have so much voice in our country, so much voice in our community, that we forget all about our voice in the presence of God. That we try to fix it instead of inviting him to come and vindicate, come and deliver, come and set it right. We're going to talk more about this in the application time, but for now, let's observe that the people of God are crying out for the day of the Lord to come. They are saying, come, Lord Jesus, your kingdom come, and it will. It will for sure. And I want us to be praying that way as well. Look at verse 6. It says, And the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared themselves to sound them. Now this gets us back to the action at hand. We are now going to see the specifics of the fire that was thrown down to the earth in the last section that we just talked about. And let me mention once again that this is almost all Old Testament paint from Exodus. And if you're familiar with that story, you won't be able to miss the connections as these things unfold. And before we dive into the details of the four trumpets that we're going to look at today, I want you to remember some general truths about the Exodus events some general truths about the plagues in particular. General truth number one about that whole scene is that God's people cried out for his help and he answered. God's people cried out for deliverance and vindication and he answered. Number two, he answered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. That's the language of Exodus. He answered with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. In other words, he answered with power with supernatural power. The, the things that we see happen in Exodus are not normal. They're not normal. They are supernatural. We're talking about frogs and gnats and hail and blood and water, all of that stuff. It's not normal. It's not natural. It is the power, the mighty hand of God on display. Number three, God did all of those things in Exodus in order to make his name great cannot escape that. He's not just trying to get his people out of Egypt into the promised land. He is, he is making his name great amongst the nations. In other words, he wants Israel to know by the powerful work that he does in Exodus, he wants Israel to know that he alone is God and that they would follow him. But it's not limited to, to Israel. It's also for Egypt. He is doing all of these things so that Egypt will know that Yahweh is the one true God. And that they would even turn and follow him. And it's not just about Israel and Egypt. It's about the whole world. The reason why we tell this story still today is to show that Yahweh alone is God. And that many people would turn and follow after him. And the same things as these trumpets are sounded. The same things are happening here in Revelation. We're going to see in chapter 9 that part of the intention of the trumpets. Of the suffering and the judgment that is coming in them is to turn people to the Lord. It is to prove that he alone is God. It is to wake the people up and bring them to repentance. We're going to see that next week as we talk about it in chapter 9. So the same purposes for which God flexes his supernatural muscles in Exodus are the same purposes that he flexes his muscles in Revelation chapter 8. Now look at it specifically starting in verse 7. This is the first trumpet. The first sounded, and there came hail and fire mixed with blood. Does that remind you of Exodus? Hail, fire, blood? Yeah. And they were thrown to the earth, and a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. 
Now, we could spend a lot of our time trying to nail down the very details of what this is. Like, what kind of hail does this? And what is this fire that comes down? And what about all of this blood? We could, we could think too much, almost, about the details. I think it's best for us to think generally here. And generally, when we read about this first trumpet, we see widespread destruction. Widespread destruction on the earth, but not total destruction. One of the things that you cannot escape as you read chapter 8 of Revelation is a third, a third, a third, a third. It's not total destruction. It is widespread, but it is not total. It is a big deal, though, to kill one-third of the trees, one-third of grass, one-third of of all the earth would have a ripple effect that would impact the entire world. So this is a massive, life-changing judgment that comes upon the earth in which one-third of the earth is burned up. Look at verse 8 in the second trumpet. Second angel sounded, And something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea. And a third of the sea became blood. And a third of the creatures which were in the sea and had life died. And a third of the ships were destroyed. In the second trumpet, we see an escalation from the first. And we're going to see that escalation as we work through all the trumpets. Now we come to the sea. And what we need to understand is that the sea was a major source of life for the people of Asia Minor in the first century. For the original recipients of this letter... The sea was where life happened. They fished. They used ships for trade. They used ships for travel. If the sea is disrupted, their whole world is disrupted. We talk about this great mountain with fire, and we could debate it, and there are two camps. Some say this is a volcano, and others say this is an asteroid. And I think we could argue about that and get nowhere. If we determine it's a volcano or an asteroid, it might not get us anywhere good. The bottom line is what's most important. There is more pain, more devastation. The things that were unaffected by the first trumpet get caught in the second trumpet. And these are things that the people had always depended on for their lives. Both the first trumpet and the second trumpet, and really the third and the fourth also, impact the things that these people depended on for their livelihoods. They were the sources of pride for these people. You might even say these were their idols. They had made idols about how they could make things grow, how they could tend olive trees and grapevines and make them grow and have grass for their cattle. They took great pride and made an idol of the ships that they built and the way they were able to sail and the way they were able to fish in the sea. And God attacks those things that were the sources of their pride. He breaks down their idols in the very same way he does with the Exodus story. In the Exodus story, as he does all of these miracles and brings these plagues, those are specific attacks at the specific things the Egyptians were fixated upon. The specific idols of the Egyptians are all shown to be worthless. And the Lord himself is shown to be the one with all the power. Same thing is happening here in Revelation. Notice again, though, it's a third. It's not total. It's a third. There's mercy in that. And the Lord is giving time for folks to repent, for folks to turn to him and trust in him. Look at verse 10 in the third trumpet. The third angel sounded, and a great star fell from heaven, burning like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is called Wormwood, and a third of the waters became Wormwood, and many died from the waters because they were made bitter. It just keeps getting worse, does it not? And again, to spend all of your time speculating on the natural occurrence that is described here is not time well spent necessarily. 
The point of this is that it's supernatural what takes place here. And there's Old Testament paint being used here, not just from the plagues of Exodus where the water, the drinking water from the Nile is impacted, but also there's a reversal of the miracle that takes place once the people leave Egypt. One of the first things that happen is they come to a place that has bitter water. and They can't drink it. And what does the Lord do there? He makes it sweet for them. He makes it sweet for them so that they can drink it. And so what we see here is a reversal of that miracle. Look at it in Exodus chapter 15. Exodus 15 says, Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went out into the wilderness of Shur, and they went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. That's what the word Marah means, bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So the people grumbled at Moses, saying, What shall we drink? Then he cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a tree, and he threw it into the waters, and the waters became sweet. What we see in Revelation chapter 8 is an undoing of that, a reversal of that. Something comes down from heaven and doesn't make the water sweet, makes it bitter. And many people die because of these bitter waters. And I'm going to step back from all of this a little bit and, and just simply say, how thankful are you for clean water? Like, is that just such a part of our lives that we take it completely for granted? That we have access to clean water to drink? We, never, we don't have to walk far to get it. We don't have to struggle hard to find it. We have access to clean water. What if that were not so? You know that many people on the planet right now struggle every day to find water to drink, clean water to drink. There are many even here in the United States that struggle with that. We've been seeing it on the news even this week with some of these storms that have come through and disrupted the water supply of places and how panicked people are to find clean water to drink. We've seen it in Michigan in a chronic problem there. Certainly around the globe, there are folks who don't have access to clean water. There are people who die every day because of a lack of clean water. Imagine a third of the earth, a third of the earth's water supply being tainted and killing people. That's the picture that's going on here. This is widespread destruction. The fourth seal, look at it, or the fourth trumpet, look at it, verse 12. The fourth angel sounded, and a third of the sun, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars were struck, so that a third of them would be darkened, and the day not shine for a third of it, and the night in the same way. Now this business of sun and moon and stars is standard apocalyptic imagery that denotes cataclysmic destruction. I don't think the best way to understand this is through a telescope. I, I don't think your best move in reading about this fourth seal is to go out and buy a telescope and start watching the stars and seeing how many of them are twinkling and how many of them are, are going dark or watch the sun. That's dangerous anyway, right? Or examine the moon. That doesn't seem to be the point. He's using these standard apocalyptic images to show it's all going to come crashing down. It's going to be a disaster, but not completely. It's a third, and there's a real, this shows the, the fluid nature of apocalyptic imagery here, because if the sun stopped shining a third of its power, we would all die pretty quickly. Like the earth would totally be undone, we would all die pretty quickly, but this is clear that it is limited in its destruction. A third, to give time for repentance, time for a change. What we see when we look at these four trumpets is that every facet of life is impacted. Zoom out a little bit with me and, and consider these four trumpets together. Listen to the words of the expository commentary when it says, The descriptions here should not be interpreted literally. 
Instead, we have a vivid and exaggerated picture of devastating judgments encompassing the entire world. The judgments striking the earth during this present evil age are designed to bring people to repentance. And the failure to repent that we're going to see in chapter 9 demonstrates that these judgments are just. I love the way Danny Aiken says it even better. He says, The precise nature of each trumpet is not altogether clear, though the end results are plain and tragic. Whatever these images represent, the impact should rattle our bones in awe of this God. Each of these judgments addresses a different aspect of life in the ancient world and in the modern world as well. The first shows the material world is no answer. The second and third address the sea and trade, including food supplies. And the fourth focuses on life itself in the heat and light of celestial bodies. The four together prove that those who live only for this world Those who live only for this world have chosen foolishly. For only in God is their true life. Earthly things turn on us. We dare not depend on them. I think he's right there, especially at the end, that this is the force of the four seals. If you depend on the green grass, if you depend on the sea, if you depend on the clean water, if you depend on the sun and moon and stars, they will all fail. But if you depend on the Lord, he will never fail. We can always trust in him. Look at verse 13. It says, then, if this was not enough, then I looked and I heard an angel flying in mid-heaven saying with a loud voice, woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth because of the remaining blasts of the trumpet of the three angels who are about to sound. I'm not going to say a ton about this other than it's a good transition to what we're going to see next week. This eagle, after all of this, flies around saying, you think that was bad? You ain't seen nothing yet. Seems to be the crux of what he's getting at, right? You think that was bad? Just wait until these other three trumpets sound. And I think there is a particular weight on the phrase, those who dwell on the earth. And I think that phrase in verse uh, 13, those who dwell on the earth, distinguishes the worldly from the godly in the midst of these judgments. And this is a distinction that we're going to see more clearly in the text next week in chapter 9. The godly will feel the pain, but they will be kept, for they have been sealed, and they will not be overcome by the wrath of God. That is not our destiny. But those who dwell on the earth, those who are merely earthly, they will be overwhelmed, they will be overcome unless they repent. And again, I want to remind you that all of this is intended to bring about repentance. Will will they repent? Maybe you've read ahead. Maybe a better question is, will you repent? Will we repent? Will our neighbors repent? I think there are four applications, general applications from this text. Number one is to pray. To pray. We see the effectiveness of the prayers of the people of God in this text. But I fear that we do not pray like this. I fear that we are not looking for the day of the Lord. That we are not inviting the return of Christ. We are not anticipating ultimate eternal vindication. One of my friends in a conversation this week said, Lord come isn't prayed around here very often because we have it made here. We think we have heaven on earth. That was pretty convicting. This prayer that we are taught as children, 
The Lord's Prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, must be more than mere cadence that we repeat. Our desire, our heart's desire and our prayer to God must not be that we would somehow rewind to the good old days of yesteryear. I think that's what a lot of people long for. Oh, if we could just go back to how it was when I was a kid. No, no, no. We want to long for something much better than that, right? Because the reality is it wasn't so good when you were a kid. If you really think about it, no matter when you were a kid, it wasn't good then either. We want to long for the day when everything is made right, do we not? We want to pray that he would come, vindicate, be the victor, and set everything right. That is our only hope. So we want to join with John. At the end of all this, one of the most striking things in Revelation is at the end of all of it, all the trouble that we see, all of the pain, all of the conflict, all of the battle, all of the victory that is ultimately Christ's and his people's, right? After all of that, John says, even so, come Lord Jesus. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Let that be the prayer of our hearts. Not just relieve this pain. Not just... Not just uh, Take away this bit of suffering, but come, Lord Jesus, set it all right forever and ever. I think we could learn a lot from our persecuted brothers and sisters on this. They are not merely desiring freedom. They are not merely desiring a voice or a vote in their country. They are not merely desiring that the authorities would allow them to gather and respect them. They are desiring that the Lord Jesus will return. Let us desire that same thing. And let us pray that it would happen. He will hear those prayers and he will answer them. This text promises that. Application number one is pray. Application number two is repent. That is the design of the trouble that we read about in chapter eight. To bring about repentance. And I think that is the design of the trouble that we experience right now. What should be our response to the coronavirus? What should be our response to political unrest, social upheaval? What should be our response to crippling weather? What we should desire to bring relief to those who are suffering, but that should never be our sole desire. We should, in fact, seek to bring relief as we preach repentance, as we call people to repentance. We don't just want to relieve the suffering of the world in the world. We want to relieve suffering so that we can tell people about Jesus as we're telling them about the relief that comes eternally in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. So don't just give clean water. Like that's, that's the thing I was wrestling with as I was reading this. I was like, we've got, we've got mission groups all over the place that are going to places that don't have clean water and they are delivering them clean water. And I read this and I, and I think, should we, should we stop doing that? Well, no. We want people to have clean water, right? But we must not do that in a way that causes them to put all of their hope in clean water. We give a cup of water in the name of Jesus Christ. We tell them, Here, here's some water that will help you survive. But oh, let me tell you about Jesus who will give salvation eternally. It matters more than clean water. Does that, does that make a little bit of sense? The design of this suffering is to bring about repentance. And so if we give relief without preaching repentance, we have failed. And we see this modeled in the life and ministry of Jesus. Jesus didn't just heal people. He preached. 
He preached and healed. Read through the Gospels and read through Acts and see how often those two things travel together. Preach and heal. Those words traveling together. Friends, that's what we should do as well. Preach and heal. Relief and repentance. Let's make that clear. So we pray. We repent. There's a lesson about perseverance here. We, as God's people, have been sealed by him. We are his Therefore, we don't need to be afraid of this. We don't need to be afraid of this. If a third of the water became undrinkable, if a third of the trees were destroyed, our hope has never been in water. Our hope has never been in trees. Our hope has never been in the sea to start with. If all of that comes crumbling down, what changes for us? Life gets more difficult here, right? But our life has never been about here, has it? Our life has always been anchored and rooted somewhere else, and that does not change. So friends, even in light of suffering that we might experience, we persevere by faith in Christ, knowing that this leads to eternal victory for us. We have hope beyond this world that gets us through this world. So we persevere. There's a lesson about perseverance in every chapter of Revelation. And then the fourth application is preach. So we've got pray, repent, persevere, and preach. Woe, woe, woe should motivate us to share the good news. These first four trumpets and the expectation of worse to come should motivate us to share the good news, the hope of deliverance that is found only in Christ Jesus. Last week we saw that we have great confidence in missions and evangelism, knowing that some from all tribes will be there. Here, the lesson is not about confidence, it's about urgency. We see the urgency of the work as judgment is coming, and we know that the only escape is Jesus Christ. So we need to, we need to take the role of this eagle, this eagle who flies around in a way that all can see, and he says, judgment is coming. Repent. Repent and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. That is what we've been called to do. So we preach, we proclaim, we testify of the good news of Jesus Christ. Be that eagle now. Don't wait till he flies over. Be declaring the hope that is Christ even now. Let's stand together and pray. Father, help us to, to fix our eyes on you in the midst of the trouble of this world. Teach us to pray like the martyrs under the altar. Teach us to pray like our persecuted brothers and sisters around the world right now. Teach us to pray for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, knowing that that is our ultimate hope. We, we don't just desire relief here. We desire restoration in your kingdom for eternity. Come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, and reign in a way that no one can deny. Father, I pray that you will use the, the trouble in our lives right now to bring us to repentance. That you will give us perseverance through the pain as our eyes are fixed on you. God, I pray that you will impress on us the urgency of eternity so that we would preach the gospel to our neighbors, to our family, and to the nations. Because we know that the only hope in this life and in the life to come 
It's the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. Help us to be telling the world about him. And we pray that as we do, that you'll give faith and repentance and that people's lives will be changed, not just for now, but forever, for your glory. In Christ's name we pray.